if something is meaningful, applicable, useful, interesting, relevant in some way, it's easier to learn. Hello, and welcome to the Arts of Language podcast with Andrew Poudois, founder of the Institute for Excellence in Writing, or as many like to say, IEW. My name is Julie Walker, and I'm honored to serve Andrew and IEW as the Chief Marketing Officer. Our goal is to equip teachers and teaching parents with methods and materials which will aid them in training their students to become confident and competent communicators and thinkers. So are you motivated, Andrew? To do what? To have a conversation about motivation. Oh, I'm always motivated to talk about motivation. Well, and I'm going to ask you to tie it to something that that we may have talked about on this podcast before, and that is classroom management. And so this is a conversation that you and I are going to have today about your talk on motivation and how that is relevant to particularly classroom teachers. So I'd like to have you start talking just in general about motivation and what does that actually mean and why do people keep clamoring for ideas and tricks and tips to get their kids to do something that perhaps they don't want to do? Well, you know, there's been a big sea change in the way we, quote, do school mm-hmm. uh, over, say, 100, 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. Methods of, quote, motivation uh, may have been very different in the past involving perhaps more in the way of threats or benefits or just kind of the idea we just don't argue about stuff. Right. You know, you just do it. Yeah, the teacher said, so I'm going to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, once upon a time, the teacher would say, you know, do this or I'm going to talk to your parents. And that was enough to bring mm-hmm. the kid into line. But now we hear kind of the opposite stories of kids saying, if you don't stop, you know, doing whatever you're doing, I'm going to talk to my parents about Mm. your teaching. Oh, boy. And so we've had a real sea change. Now, that's kind of an extreme circumstance, Mm -hmm. but it it does happen. But I think it reflects kind of a modern problem. And that is just kids these days don't necessarily grow up in a world where there's an expectation for rigor and expectation for making sacrifices to do what's right so that you can do better in the world. Uh, most of most of kids today are subtly or overtly convinced that they have a right to be comfortable and a relatively easy life that strain that that rigor is stressful. And the last thing you ever want to do is create stress in someone's life. Mm-hmm. And so this whole modern way of thinking, well, it's infected every part of society. And it's infected not only schools and classrooms, but even those of us outside the system of schools and classrooms. Mm-hmm. It's affected the way we think. Sure. Like, I can't be too demanding. Uh, but that aside, we still have the problem of how to encourage people to do hard things. Right. If you were to ask 
any one of my own boys to finish this quote, hard work is, they would respond by saying immensely satisfying. Well, that's because you, you know, did a good job. Well, and you know, they're all in their 30s now. And yeah. so I know you can't believe I have 30 year old children. I'm that young right I, now. I do believe it only because <laughs> I knew your children when they were children. This is true. This and I'm is just true. curious when they were teenagers, would they have answered that? They would have, although they might not have believed it. They Right. But yeah. today, you know, the the proof is in the pudding yeah. and they all work they very all hard. They very hard and mm-hmm. they all do very well. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they're all very satisfied with that. I think they are. Uh, but there is that big gap between how do you get, you know, a preteen, young teen mm-hmm. to embrace the idea that doing something that appears to be unpleasant is actually a benefit. Right. So, you know, I've been contemplating this a long time, and a a lot of my early teaching, of course, was in music, violin, and part of the whole world of being a violin teacher is to help parents develop systems that will help them to get their kids to do arguably one of the hardest things you could ask someone to do, which is put excellent concentration into the task of learning something new on a musical instrument. Mm. And that's just never fun or easy for anyone, and yet it is immensely satisfying. Mm -hmm. You just have to get from here to there. Right. And, you know, I kind of make a joke about, you know, an 11-year-old boy, um, just as a kind of general average kid, you – very rarely can convince them that they should do this because it's good for them, right? You should do this because it'll be good for you. Mm -hmm. No, the kid is sitting there thinking, no, what's good for me is if I didn't have to do this or if I do, that I get some benefit that I perceive as good for me. Well, what does an 11-year-old child perceive as good for them? Not being ready for, you know, a university or career. No, they want what they want right now. Right. So how do we bridge that gap? Right. And I think just as you mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I think this is more prevalent today because of our, quote, microwave society. We want things. We want it now. What's the instant result? How can we instantly learn how to play the violin? You know, learn how to play the violin in three easy steps. Exactly. I remember you and I attended an event with a professor of education from some university. Mm -hmm. And we didn't really know what to expect. And the main takeaway for me was he believed that edutainment Mm -hmm. is an absolute necessity, Mm -hmm. that we, we can't successfully teach kids today unless we are simultaneously entertaining them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, You know, there's certain value for engaged teaching. But when we go to the word entertainment, we start thinking everything from miniature golf to Netflix to video games. You know, where does that fit? Mm -hmm. And what is the mindset? And and are children now subtly being conditioned to expect entertainment all the time? Right. Right. And then that kind of eliminates some of the harder, more rigorous, less entertaining things that would build the basic skills that would allow them greater satisfaction 
later on. So I, I kind of was a little, I wouldn't say shocked, but jarred mm. by that idea of mm-hmm. edutainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we see it now. And, and that was at least 10 years ago, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Now we see curriculum is, is very much all kind of based on that. And if it's not a game, nobody will learn anything. Right. Well, and I, I think about this idea of walking into a first grade classroom. And this was my experience when my daughter-in-law was teaching first grade. Mm. She had such a cute room. There was just so many great little – she's a decorator. Right. So, of course, she's going to decorate the room. I remember. I was there. Yes, you were there and taught her her group of first graders how to write. But I remember thinking some of what you say about – the wonder that you create when you start with an empty classroom and begin to add to it. The kids come to class and wonder, you know, what's Mrs. Walker going to put on her wall yeah. today? There's, there's a new thing. What mm-hmm. is that for? What, what is, is it? That? Yeah. You know. Can I spot the new thing? And and yet there's almost this culture amongst classroom teachers that says, do I get the, you know, yeah. I'm the decorator do, award. Do we have to have a... a- Spend the whole week before school starts, Yeah, you know, competition to have the best-looking room. And yeah, I've actually said if, if I were teaching in the school, I would start the year with almost nothing on the walls. Mm-hmm. And then whatever is going to go up on the wall would be intentional. And then you would gradually build the resource mm-hmm. and, and be sure that everything is not just intentional but also is – useful, has application for students. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've thought about teachers I've had, teachers I've seen. I think about my great teachers, Dr. Suzuki, Mrs. Ingham. I think about things I've tried that have worked, things that I have tried that didn't work so well. And uh, it kind of goes all the way back to Mrs. Ingham, Mm -hmm. who started the whole thing with, you have to teach at the point of need. Right. Uh, now, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. It can mean a lot of things, but one of those uh, areas of meaning would be relevancy. If and, and I think we all experience this, whether we're six years old or sixty years old. If something is meaningful, applicable, useful, interesting, relevant in some way, it's easier to learn. Mm-hmm. And if it is not applicable, meaningful, useful, interesting, relevant in some way, it is harder to learn. And so the question for us is, how do we maximize that intangible quality of relevancy Mm -hmm. in our teaching environment and with the students before us? Uh, So that's where, you know, my my thinking and my study have been. Uh, So uh, trying to examine that principle, relevancy. Mm -hmm. And in the process, uh, as you have heard me talk about, uh, I've kind of identified four forms of relevancy. The highest and best form is intrinsic relevancy. And that's where you are fortunate enough to discover something that is just, for no other reason, fascinating to someone. And those things are not the same for everyone. Mm -hmm. But when you can find things that are interesting to most everyone, then you know, the rest of the kids, you know, if it's a group of children in a class or a school, they'll kind of come along with that with less resistance. 
so you and I have been through a, a lot of creating source texts and deciding source texts and vetting source texts mm -hmm. because we live in a world where people are increasingly sensitive to things uh, that may be included in a source text. Well, and I'm just going to stop you for a moment. I want you to define for our listeners that may not know our writing system. Oh, sure. What is a source text? Well, you know, our system is based on giving kids stuff to work with, you know, Legos that they can put together, pieces, the mm -hmm. raw material. So, you know, in most writing programs or approaches, they'll say, think of something mm -hmm. and prove that you can write by thinking of this thing. And they'll give a, a prompt, you know, what was the best vacation you took or mm -hmm. what's, uh, you know, you, the favorite book you've read or what compared to restaurants you've been to, you know, stuff like that. And so the child has to, to think, okay, what am I going to write? And that's, that, for many people, is the starting point. For many children, it's also a big block point. Yeah. They can't necessarily know what they think about something unless they have developed the tools for identifying uh, and categorizing and organizing those thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, for a lot of kids, it's just impression. I like it. Why do you like it? I don't know. I just do. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we have to give them the tools. So what we, you know, discovered long ago is that the the ancient system, if you will, the tried and true system, we see it from the ancient rhetoric exercises all the way into, say, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography. It's easier to learn something if you have something to practice with. Mm -hmm. So we give them the pieces to practice with, which would be uh, source text, models, uh, stylistic techniques with a checklist. Mm -hmm. And so when I say source text, I'm talking about something that we can give to children and they make a little outline and retell that information. Or they use it to learn summarizing skills where they don't take notes from every sentence, but they're looking for the interesting, important, or relevant fact. Or we give them a story and say, retell this story or um, retell the story and change things if you want, but you don't have to make it up mm -hmm. completely out of nothing. And so with with huge success with this approach, we've seen thousands and thousands, probably by this time dozens, if not hundreds of thousands of yes. children mm -hmm. who were able to break free from the, I don't know what to write, I can't think of anything, to I know how to write, mm -hmm. and they go off to a you know, a teacher in a high school or a college or whatever, and they do great. Mm -hmm. uh, so the source text, you know, are key to our materials. Right. And we have labored through source texts for theme-based writing lessons. We mm -hmm. have carefully chosen and and written and edited source texts for our whole Structure and Style for Students. Six, right. six years right. worth of source texts. Right. And it, ranging anywhere from cowboy grub to the blue-ringed octopus to the bowerbird. Yeah, well, and and going on up from there. Um, pirates. Pirates. Caesar and the pirates. Caesar and the pirates yeah, story for, yeah. for our high school group. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what I've noticed is that if you can find or create a source text that is intrinsically interesting mm -hmm. and Unfortunately, that sometimes involves dangerous or disgusting mm -hmm. or ugly stuff because kids are generally – I mean, they see something. That's the first thing they ask. Is it dangerous? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. um, 
it's different. So, so I've noticed if you can engage children with intrinsic relevancy, another way to do this, of course, would be to look at a particular child and say, oh, she's a horse crazy girl. Mm-hmm. Let's just do source text about horses for a while and just get this going. Uh, and then we can, you know, spread out once the writing thing is, has, you know, been well established. But I wouldn't generally walk into a mixed group of kids uh, whom I may not know and think, okay, this little thing about horses is going to engage everyone. I And, you know, I hate to be generalizing, but sometimes it's valid because – you experience that way that most boys don't seem to be particularly interested in the things like horses. They they would rather write about a scorpion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So why not why not do that? Doesn't mean scorpions are better than horses or horses are better than scorpions. They're just different. So if you're teaching a, a very small group of children and you know them well, like your own kids, you can. You could probably query them, mm-hmm. you know, as to where wh- what would you love to contemplate and, mm-hmm. and read about and write about and figure that out. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily ask them because they might not know, but through conversation. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a, a larger, more general group of kids you may not know as well, you have to kind of err on the boy-friendly side mm-hmm. uh, in terms of engaging text. But that mm-hmm. you know that if you can find something that immediately captures the imagination mm-hmm. there's relevancy you know see, see the same thing in poetry you know you, you want kids to memorize poetry and you give them some sweet nice beautiful poem and they're like Bleh. you know especially <laughs> the 11 year old boys mm-hmm. it can be kind of like Bleh, about a lot of things sure but you know give them a, a poem that tells a story mm-hmm. you know casey at the bad mm-hmm. or you know an adventure poem um or a, a war poem Right. And immediately that poem is so much more interesting to them. So, uh, you know, a lot of it is material. In fact, I remember you've heard me tell this story before. I remember doing a demonstration class trying to use a textbook from this school. And it Mm -hmm. was a public school and it was a social studies textbook. And Mm -hmm. they were doing, I don't know, empires or explorers or something. And I remember reading the page that they were going to beyond. And it was about this guy who, you know, was an explorer and founded the city of St. Augustine in Florida. And then he became the governor of Cuba or something, Florida, I don't know. And it was just so dull. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, it's not possible that this guy could be as boring as this textbook portrays him. I went, got the encyclopedia and I found all sorts of super fascinating things, not necessarily something you would put in a school social studies book because it included the fact that he left home as a young teenager mm-hmm. to go be a sailor. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, he slaughtered a lot of people in the process of founding his city, and that's just awful. And, you know, all the interesting stuff, I guess, was just not appropriate enough to make the final cut for a completely politically correct, safe School textbook. Mm-hmm. But the good stuff that would have engaged the children mm-hmm. was, wasn't was there. And uh, I fear I irritated the teacher a little bit because I threw out the textbook and I used the encyclopedia with all the interesting things yeah. uh, for the kit. Mm-hmm. But sometimes that's just you know what you have to do. So first form of relevancy is 
can you find or make something intrinsically interesting?、Mm-hmm. So the second form of relevancy. Well,、um, would and this be is to, tied to motivation. Yes,、mm-hmm. and, and that would be inspired mm-hmm. relevancy. Mm-hmm. So I think we can all look back in our、mm-hmm. years of being in school, whatever grade suits you, and try to find in your in your memory a teacher that you really liked.、Mm-hmm. And then you would say, "Why did I like that teacher?"、Mm-hmm. And it might not. In fact, it probably isn't because that teacher was the most lenient, or lax,、right. or affectionate. It's sometimes the teacher who was rigorous、mm-hmm. had higher expectations, but above all, that teacher loved what they were teaching. That just comes through so、mm-hmm. powerfully. And I'm sure you've you've had this experience of. Maybe not knowing much about something, but you hear someone start talking about it, and they know so much that their love of it, their their affection for that, their mastery of the knowledge, just draws you right in. Yep, exactly. And so, can we be teachers like that? Would you like to know the name of my inspiring teacher? Well, what grade would be my most curious question? But name tenth grade English, Mrs. Mark. Mark. Mrs. Mark, and do you know what she used to say to us? You'll recognize this phrase. Okay. Good enough. Oh yes. Good enough, and my this is another one. My boys can finish this sentence. Good enough isn't. Yes. Yeah, and she was definitely had a high standard, but was so passionate. <sighs> and you know what else she did, Andrew? She did some of the things that you do when you're teaching writing. Is she would not really rabbit trail. Unintentionally, but would be very intentional about teaching life lessons as、mm, well. Like、yeah. this is really important. You need to own your own education. Stop being spoon fed. Good enough isn't. And she was just such a great, inspiring teacher. Well, it would be wonderful if you could see if she's alive. Contact her and tell her yes, that. Yes, I'm sure some people have, but、yeah. there is that electricity, that energy,、mm-hmm. that kind of sparkingness、mm-hmm. that. You detect in a person,、yep. and you just respond to it. And kids are just the same.、Uh, you can also go the opposite and say, "Well, which teacher do you either really dislike or you don't remember them at all、mm-hmm. because they were so unnotable?"、Mm-hmm. Uh, my example would be high school ninth grade biology. biology. Yep, mine too. Nothing. It's just a huge blank,、yep. and I don't know. I really had a different experience with other science classes,、mm-hmm. especially chemistry, because the teacher could make it relevant somehow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've spent most of my life not needing much biology or chemistry、mm-hmm. because I didn't go into a field that required it, aside from knowing a few good chemistry jokes, <laughs>、uh, for which I'm grateful. Oh, but, gotta gotta tell one right now.、Let's、oh well, I you know I would tell you a chemistry joke, but the good ones are gone. Are gone, yes. <laughs> yeah, and then、uh, what was the other one?、Uh, two atoms walking down the street. One says the other, "I think I've lost an electron." The other one says, "Really? Are you sure?" The other one says, "Yeah, I'm positive." Nice. <laughs> yeah, you know, if you don't know any chemistry, you can't get the joke.、Mm-hmm. But so there is that. You know, there's that inspiration quality. Yeah. And you know, in a way, it's hard to know a lot and be excited about everything. So that's why you know we do hope that we get teachers who are more knowledgeable and more enthusiastic, and so we start to、uh, seg- segregate, if you will. We start to do subjects separately around middle and high school. You know, in the homeschool world, it's a little harder. 
uh, although with the plethora of co-ops and particularly online class opportunities mm-hmm. that are just all over the place, even if, you know, for me, for example, I just didn't like physics or biology at all, and I didn't want to teach it, and my wife didn't want to teach it, uh, so we found someone else mm-hmm. to teach a small group of homeschool kids and, you know, broker deal. I'll take your kids and I'll do Shakespeare and, you know, speech and debate and writing class. And you take my kids and do biology and chemistry and physics. And often that's a good deal because the people who love the sciences aren't necessarily as happy, you know, working in the world of, of literature and writing. The third form of relevancy is where we move into a questionable zone, which is contrived, contrived relevancy. This is when something is not actually interesting to anyone, (laughs) but it's stuff you have to know anyway. Uh, Things that are very useful later in life. There's not an immediate application, but there's some motive to do it. My perfect example is multiplication tables. Mm -hmm. It is a tragedy. When a child ends up going, getting into high school and doesn't have math fact mastery yep. of basic addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, and ability to do some mental math yeah. because you can't think mathematically. You can't see relationships between numbers. But to convince a nine-year-old that he should learn you know, all these multiplication facts up to 12 times 12 – how do you do that? Right. And I just want to insert a comment right here that we did talk about the importance of mastery learning and multiplication in particular in our Mastering Learning podcast. Right. So listeners, if you have not yet heard that one, I do recommend yeah. that you head over there and listen to that great, one. Great, great podcast. But I remember my father. He he was an engineer mm-hmm. and he was old school. I, Probably I, used a slide rule. I, he used a slide rule. Yeah, our dads are similar yep, in, yep. in that engineering slide rule, knife sharpening, sailing world. Yes. But I, I remember he used a particular technique that was highly motivational to me. I couldn't have cared less about multiplication. There's mm-hmm. no application in my actual life. <laughs> but he offered me a deal. He said, Andy – when you have got all these math facts up to 12 times 12 and you know them and you can, you know, give the answers instantly, no hesitation, no counting, no figuring, just you know it, you get this Cub Scout knife. This was the precursor of the Swiss Army knife. Mm-hmm. It was one of those knives that had lots of fold-out little tools and it had the Cub Scout logo. I wanted that thing more than anything I had ever wanted in my life. Were you a Cub Scout? I was for a short time. I did not know that. And so it didn't matter what I had to do. I would have done anything to get that knife. Sure. And so he just said, when you can do this, this is yours. Now, some people would look at that and say, oh, it's bribery. Mm -hmm. Well, let us make a distinction in, in language. It's very important to look at the meaning of words. Bribery is when you pay someone to do something illegal or immoral. And you often correct me on this, Andrew, <laughs> because well, I don't always get it right. But, but you know, we, th- we think that way. Mm-hmm. But having a child work hard to accomplish a learning objective yep. is neither illegal nor immoral. No. And that Cub Scout knife, or whether you want to use some kind of other system with mm-hmm. you know points or mm-hmm. pennies or whatever, it's an external affirmation, right, of that accomplishment. Mm -hmm. We all like that. In Mm -hmm. fact, 
most of us would prefer to live in a society where our efforts are rewarded financially. Right. The harder we work, the more we can make. Yep. The more we contribute to an organization, uh, the more responsibility we take. Um, even if it's not all about money, there there are those benefits that we gain that are not necessarily the immediate result of the effort, but they do benefit us. Right. What a nine-year-old boy wants is a super cool knife. Mm-hmm. That's a huge benefit to a nine-year-old boy, so it's motivating. So it's not bribery. Right. I know you love your job, and I know I love my job. Yep. But I suspect if neither of us were getting paid, <laughs> we would probably have to go do a less fun job. Yes. So there, there is that. And, and that's, that's fine. I, I don't have a problem with economic systems mm-hmm. because we live in an economic world. Right. And there are a few people who say, no, I don't want any part of it. I will give up and give my whole life to serving God and my fellow man. Yep. And I don't care if that means poverty. Well, now you're still looking at rewards, only they're spiritual ones. Mm-hmm. There's still benefits coming you know, which is why, you know, anytime we see a more socialist idea, everybody should just do everything because they should and everybody gets the same, you know, life out of it. it it's disingenuous to the, the human spirit. Mm-hmm. And this is true for kids. Mm-hmm. Kids don't like socialism. You know, if you create a, an artificial environment, pretty soon their sense of justice you know, and of course, all those experiments where they put the the college kids in groups and mm-hmm. say, "Here, you, you all get the grade of the highest person," and then they all just quit working because right. they're all, and then everybody's grade. Right. You know. It reminds me of the line from The Incredibles, the movie, The Incredibles, a, a cartoon from Pixar. Yes. Where they, you know, the mom says, "You know, well, everybody wins. Everybody's special." And the kid goes, that means no one is. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, there right. could be some truth. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, not, I, I'm not trying to be political sure. or fanatical. What I'm just saying is um, we look and we see what are some motivations that are right. maybe contrived. Right. But in the end, I, am, I, I don't have my Cub Scout knife. Yeah. I probably broke it within months of getting it. Who yeah. knows? Right. I don't remember that. What I do know is I'm very, very happy that I grew up knowing that 6 times 7 is 42, and I don't have to figure that out. Right. Right? Now, and every other fact. So We've got to get number four Well, in. it's super simple, and that is enforced. Mm. Enforced relevancy. We basically say, learn this, mm-hmm. or you will suffer a penalty. Right. And, you know, probably we can look at the older days where there were things like corporal punishments mm-hmm. involved. Mm-hmm. There were threats. There mm-hmm. were... And, and those had an effect, but in my experience, most of the time, those enforced relevancies gave the appearance of learning, but not a lot. Yeah. You know, I, I go back to biology and I think, why did I even take that class? Yeah. Had to. Right. Why did I have to? Because they say, mm-hmm. if you don't take biology, you can't graduate from high school. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, if you don't get a decent grade, it will bring down your GPA. And if your GPA is too low, you won't get into college. And if you don't get into college, well, you're probably going to live, live a life of misery and poverty and ignorance and stupidity. <laughs> so that's why you take biology. Okay, so you take biology, you hold the information just long enough to pass the test, go to the next chapter. Two months after the end of the school year, what percentage of that mm-hmm. remains? Yep, yep. So, yeah, we can force it, 
And, and sometimes, and I'd be the first person to confess that I have used threatening measures. Mm-hmm, sure. Like, you're going to finish that math or you're not going to eat ever. Right, yeah. <laughs> of course, they know that's a lie. But Right, right. So it is easy to fall into that enforced mode. But the less we can do it and the more we can capitalize on intrinsic, the more we can be inspiring uh, the more we can share our love of stuff, right. and then the more we can contrive reasonable systems right. to help children navigate less pleasant aspects of learning. That's great. My my grandson, yes, he's eight. He, he's really not into reading. He would rather be out in the field chasing the cows around and building stuff. And mm-hmm. you know, he's just one hundred percent that kind of kid. Mm-hmm. But his mom wants him to read, so she comes. She says, "We need a big motivator." to get him to finish this reading program. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, I'll take him to a convention. So he was pretty excited about that idea. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. we'll see if he gets all those books read by the convention I might take him to. Yep, sounds great. Well, this topic of this podcast was motivation and how it relates to classroom management. So check one box, but we have another box to check. We we need to talk about classroom management. Yes. So let's talk about that next week. How's that sound? Okay, great. Thanks so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, you can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, or just visit us each week at IEW.com slash podcast. Until then, on behalf of Andrew Pudua and the team at IEW, I thank you for allowing us to partner with you on your journey toward better listening, speaking, reading, writing, and thinking.